Hello, and uh, welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis. Uh, today, we are very pleased to have joining us Ellen Pinsky, whose book, Death and Fallibility in the Psychoanalytic, Psychoanalytic Encounter, Mortal Gifts, um, will be uh, uh, our topic of conversation. Um, I want to introduce Dr. Pinsky. Um, I believe you're Dr. Pinsky, is that correct? Uh, I guess, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so not everyone's a a doctor in the field, but I just wanted to make sure. Dr. Pinsky has um, published uh, articles and reviews in uh, Psychoanalytic Quarterly, JAPA, American Imago, Salmagundi, and the Three Penny Review. Um, I will say this about her book. She's clearly... um, uh, a writer, a, a really a terrific writer. So I'm not surprised that she has publications inside and outside of um, of the field. She's also on the faculty of the Boston Psychoanalytic Society and Institute, um, where she was awarded the Deutsche Prize for Writing, and she is uh, maintains a private practice as well um, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. So without further ado, um, welcome to. New Books and Psychoanalysis, Dr. Pinsky, and my name is Tracy Morgan. I forgot to say, this is Tracy Morgan, your steadfast host. So welcome again, Dr. Pinsky. Thank you. Hello. Hello. Um, I want to ask you if you can um, just begin to give us in broad strokes or minute strokes, actually, um, what what was it that prompted you or aroused a desire in you to um, to begin to work on and to create this book? Um, well, I would say, um, a single event, though, of course, complicated beyond that, which was the, uh, sudden death of the therapist that I had been working with for over four years, four and a half years. Um, this was in 1994. And at the time, um, I was very engaged in the treatment with him. It was a two and three times a week treatment. Um, and I was also in graduate school at that time in the process of changing my profession. And um, he died very unexpectedly. So I would say that that event um, was really, you know, what, what, what triggered my need to, to think about certain things and then go on to write about it. Well, this is a book that does combines two topics, right? It, uh, which is what fascinated me, is the way in which you position the unique experience of the analyst's death side by side with the analyst's violation, I guess you could say, of the frame or the murder of the analysis. So <laughs> we have both of these topics, and I was very surprised uh, the many, the many the different ways that you much rather have your analyst um, die than violate the frame, perhaps, I was thinking as I... Oh, I think that's one of the things I was trying to think through, was what was the difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what, can you talk to us about the difference? I mean, what, how would you describe this difference? Well, I think that the, that the idea that came to um, kind of uh, took possession of me was... Uh, the idea of the analyst's um, vulnerability, that the analyst is a human being, and that human beings, um, they are fallible, they can make mistakes, um, and they can also, uh, they're vulnerable, they can die, they can get sick, they can die. And I, over time, I uh, thought about this, um, in the terms of the the sequence of uh, maybe how I how I uh, elaborated these ideas, mm-hmm. um, I was a graduate student at the time, and I was um, incredibly uh, taken, already very immersed, kind of in love with psychoanalysis, and very immersed in reading the psychoanalytic literature. Mm-hmm. And this person, uh, I was very engaged with him. I had gone back to school to get a clinical degree. It's maybe relevant to all of this also in terms of who I am and what this book comes out of is that I was, uh, my first my first profession, I was a, a teacher for 25 years. I was mm-hmm. a 
middle school, junior high school um, English teacher mm-hmm. for 25 years. And at a certain point made a decision to, and you know, and, and what I did in the classroom, how I was with those children in the classroom, I do think of as sort of a, a natural step that I took to also be thinking about whether I might like to do clinical work. Mm-hmm. So then I did go back to school and um, to see what it would be to get a clinical degree. And uh, early on in graduate school, I think it was in my second year in graduate school, this person who I had been working with suddenly died. So uh, I ended up actually writing my doctoral dissertation um, on this subject. So this this book, these essays, uh, really the the sort of the structure of the argument in the in the book, it's very related to what the doctoral dissertation contained. Mm-hmm. Um, but all of the essays were reworked, you know, rewritten. Uh, things were changed over time. And in the course of that, um, I went in, went on to psychoanalytic training yes. and became an analyst. <laughs> so I'm not sure I've answered the question yet, but um, well, very, I think very... It does not read like a dissertation. I mean... Uh, <laughs> well, you know, let me tell you that one of the things that I was very fortunate in was that I was not in a traditional um, PhD program. I went to, used to be called, it's now William James College, I believe. I used to, it used to be called Massachusetts School of Professional Psychology. Mm-hmm. So my degree is a PsyD degree, a mm-hmm. doctor of psychology. But one of the best things for me about that program, I didn't think about it when I began, but um, in the end, it's certainly true, was that I wasn't required, I was required to write a, a dissertation I believe they called it a doctoral project, but it didn't have to be a standard kind of, I had a lot of free freedom mm-hmm. in, in what I did. I didn't have to do a numbers dissertation. I didn't have to do anything that fit a certain kind of category that might mm-hmm. be more standard. So I was freed up in that sense to just start to write. So, um, I mean, this book, this collection of essays is very different from what the doctoral dissertation was. It's both similar to, but it's also quite uh, transformed. Um, but the doctoral dissertation uh, was done and was finished in 1998. Mm-hmm. And then over the years, I rewrote the essays, wrote new things, you know, um, but it's related to that original project. And the very first thing I looked into when I, um, after this person died, after this man died, was I went to the literature on the illness and death of the therapist, of the analyst. Yeah, and I found it unbelievably um, lacking, kind of um, superficial. There wasn't a whole lot of it, and very little of it had to do with the perspective of the of the patient, the bereaved one. Um, so I was very interested in that. So the first things I wrote really were about um, the failure of that literature. Um, it's it's better, you know. People have written more over time. Um, but that's where I went first. And then I think mixed in with that, I started to think about um, what, were the, what, were the, what were the qualities of what it was to be the person who sits in the, you know, in the analyst seat. Okay, you're a human being. It's not just that you're vulnerable, you can get sick and die. You can also make errors and you can also, um, you know, um, you, you can, you can, you can do wrong things or things that are, are harmful. And concurrent with all of this, once I then went into analytic training, which was right after I graduated from, got my degree. So part of my story, part of the story of where this book came from was that um, there were, uh, we lost in my first 10 years at Bipsy in the Boston community, we lost three senior analysts to um, ethical misconduct. Mm -hmm. So that was all in the mix of what I was all the time thinking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh, sex and death. Um, Yeah. And and yet this book is in its own way a very quietly, persistently uh, sexual book. I kept thinking, you know, if Andre Green was alive, 
he would be very happy to read this book because you do place sex and the erotic and the erotic countertransference and, you know, fantasy um, at the heart in some ways of, I think, how you view what, uh, you know, what, what an analytic treatment can, um, what do you say? It sort of can heat, um, use these words, you know, there's a, uh, like there's almost like you get the sense of uh, the, you know, the consulting room is like a, a cauldron and because of right, right. reality, the desire of the patient, you know, grows and it's then. Well, it's, it's it pulls for that. It's structured mm-hmm. to intensify um, mm-hmm. the very powerful attachment and feelings for the transference magnet for the, for the analyst. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah. So um I think that um, just inherently um, it's a situation that um, has a lot of heat and brings with it um, the potential for, it brings with it dangers. Danger is also inherent. Mm -hmm. Risk is also inherent because you have these two people alone in a room. Um, It, (laughs) The uh, I think I say somewhere in the book that it's a, a carefully controlled seduction, mm-hmm. and that um, you know the person who is responsible for um, you know shepherding this uh, is you know is is just a human being you know is <laughs> some someone who uh, you know with all sorts of possibilities for. Um, you know, for, for getting into difficulty. Absolutely. And I get in, as I was reading the book, I was thinking about um, psychoanalytic training and um, right. the book addresses this, but you're asking questions and you're um, suggesting at some level that, you know, there's a, a moral, um, what is the word? The, the, the analyst is the moral um, sort of, you know, say, Safeguard more. There are principles that at play that the analyst um, must abide by. Right, um, and you remind us that uh, you know that uh, you know this is an invitation to fall in love. That's what the treatment is, right? And that abstinence is alluring. Um, yeah, that's a very. By the way, that's a very important idea. Let me just emphasize that sure. now that you say it. Um, in the writing of these essays. I think I became increasingly interested in that idea. I mean, I think I said it in some version early in one of the early papers, but over time as I, you know, worked over and worked through this subject more and more, I became um increasingly struck by that that paradox that the that the abstinence um is alluring that mm-hmm. it it is the analysts holding back that um, makes the analyst all the more uh, magnetic and attractive. And it opens up the possibility for, um, you know, a tremendous depth of, um, of, of exchange. Yeah. Uh, no, God, no, there's like two really important, they feel very important to me questions. So, um, so I was thinking about the importance you place on absent, you know, neutrality and absence have gotten like a bad rap for the last 20. They've seconds. also been misinterpreted in my view. Absolutely. Yeah. I would, yeah. I They've been sort of distorted and yeah. Yeah. Stra- there's a, uh, there's a straw man kind of feel to the yeah. way in which, you know, this sort of Freudian analyst blah, 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 was, you know, went about, went about his business. But I think that, um, so abstinence, as you write, protects and heats. Right. And abstinence following your argument, maybe nothing analytic ever happens. So I wanted to ask you a question. Um, uh, I think that analysts, and I think Nathan Kravis writes about this, you know, we, we also hate psychoanalysis. It's like easy to hate it. Like, you know, the, the world hates it. We sometimes hate it. We, so, me, you mean that we clinicians hate it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That we we also we also hate it, and because it, it's difficult, it, it's very it's a it's a really it's a tough job. Yeah. What would you think if I were to say that um, the current turn in the literature toward um, and presumably in the clinic toward enactments and the analyst subjectivity are these symptoms of anti Would you could would it be fair to say these may be symptoms of anti psychoanalytic hatred? 
um, <laughs> I'm going to give a very simple, um, you know, answer. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm not trying to be funny, but it is kind of funny. My, my, my answer would be, um, but this is very simple-minded, pared down. My answer would be yes. <laughs> I, tend to, I tend to think so. I, I tend to think that, that we're always in some way um, skirting or avoiding or in some way trying to manage what is um, both, you know, powerful, um, both has the possibility to help, but also... Um, is hateful, mm-hmm. painful and hateful and hard. And, and um, I guess I think um, that, you know, one thing I might suggest is that there is an underlying way in which I don't think I use this word anywhere in the book, but, but, but somebody used it in, in talking about what, what she thought was underlying um, my argument or embedded somewhere mm-hmm. is that there is actually um, a pull that's embedded in the structure of the arrangement towards something perverse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that, and that one is the dyad, you know, they're always, or one is always, um, there's always that temptation or that pull to something that is um, perverse. Well, right. And that we, all these feelings emerge, no one is to act. We're just to continue to talk about these these, you know, particularly sexual feelings and the erotic, you know, transference and the analyst is supposed to use words and the patient is supposed to use words. And it is a form of, um, you know, su- suffering on the road to potential freedom. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So, so you, do you care to elaborate a little bit more? You talk about, um, you return us to Winnicott and the idea of retaliation, right? Being the death of the analysis. What, so, so this situation, this setup, uh, can arouse retaliatory feelings in, in the yes. analyst. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you have, you have other things to say about this in the book. Would you care to sort of give well, us? Well, that I, you know, for me, um, you know, one of my favorite exercises um, across the years, and I use it um, in one place in in one of the um, essays. Um, is this notion of the time capsule. Mm -hmm. And I used to play this game with one of my very wonderful um, supervisors when I was a candidate. Um, And he was also, I would say, you know, something of a Freud junkie as, you know, I sort of am, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, that I I love, um, especially the the early papers and papers on technique. And um, I uh, think he's a great writer. And, so we used to play this game, um, the time capsule, and you are to imagine that the entire psychoanalytic literature is destroyed. It's just destroyed tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have time to put in a time capsule. Let's say, you know, choose your number, but let's say 10 papers from across the history of psychoanalysis that you would put in this time capsule. And if somebody could dig up that time capsule 250 years from now, from what was in the time capsule, they could reconstruct psychoanalysis. Mm -hmm. And two of the papers that I would always have in my time capsule would be um, observations on transference love would be one. I just think it's fundamental. And I would also have Winnicott's hate in the counter-transference mm-hmm. because I think of those two pa- I think of Winnicott in hate in the counter-transference, um, not just in that paper, but in that paper um, in particular. He's actually in conversation with Freud. Mm-hmm. You know, and Freud is saying in uh, observations on transference love, you know, what am I to, what are we to do with this love? Um, and what am I to do with what that evokes in me? And essentially, I do think it's a paper about the countertransference, observations on transference love. But then Winnicott is saying, you know, what, what do I do with the hate, you know, that uh, that's evoked in me, mm-hmm. the analyst. Absolutely. And I think I was going to ask a question about training, and I'll return to it. Yeah. That seems appropriate. Um, I was thinking about, um, you know, having to, the analyst having to contend with, with the perverse, <laughs> perverse feelings um, aroused in us as we sit and listen to patients, feelings that we 
you know, might have a resistance to feeling ourselves, but the more we get in touch with those feelings, usually the better the analysis can go. Um, you ask, um, you know, what kind of caring is this, is a quote, and then you say, what would prepare the analyst for such a, quote, impossible profession? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking. I don't know how to answer that question, by the way. <laughs> I don't know how to answer that question, well, I, by the way. I want to steer us in a little bit of yeah. a particular direction, which is that um, many candidates here in New York, it's sort of an open, I would consider it to be an open secret. And I imagine it's also the case um, that New York is not uh, not unique um, in this in this realm that many candidates will speak or recent graduates will speak finally about that they didn't tell the truth to their training analysts. Did I say that again? The first part, they did not they tell did the not truth? feel free to tell the truth about themselves to their training analysts, nor to tell the truth to their training supervisors, right, on their, you know, control. About what they actually did clinically? Or about, no, what they, well, about what they actually felt. I mean, I've uh-huh. been in, in peer supervisions with candidates and graduates alike, and listening to candidates talk about, like, particularly the erotic countertransference and feeling like, well, I can't talk to my supervisor about this. And I'm thinking, well, so, so how do we prepare given, I, I think that this is not an uncommon phenomenon. Candidates are terrified of being judged inadequate, wrong, that their feelings are wrong, that they shouldn't have these feelings. They should be over these feelings, whatever they may be. Rather than many institutes don't think of these feelings as aroused by the patient, they think that mm-hmm. you know, the, the analyst, the train, you know, the candidate must go back into treatment. It really, it's it's kind of a it's a heartbreak, but it is the only I think the only um, protection that we have to enter into this work is to be able to feel everything and have someone to talk to about it. So, do you yeah. Have, so yeah, go ahead. That's I mean, just any. Any thoughts about this? Because it seems like we set ourselves up to end up having analysts graduating who are not prepared to contend with some very hard feelings like hate and sexual desire. Right, right. Because are you there? Are deemed yeah. as, you, know, you shouldn't know you should be beyond that or above that. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I'm not trained. In, I'm trained as a modern analyst. So it's a little bit it's quite different. Um, and training in the use of feelings is the centerpiece of the work. Yeah, so all yeah. feelings are like, bring them. Um, but a lot of friends in other institutes were like, I can't, I can't talk to my supervisor. They, they'll report this and it'll all be seen as weird. Yeah. I, um, you know, I don't, I don't have an easy answer. Of course, there is no easy answer to that. I can think of, um, and, and I do have some idea from you know what I've read about the history of the discipline, that that kind of thing. I mean, I don't think something like that ever goes away, ever becomes a non-problem, mm-hmm. but that it perhaps was even a, a, an even greater problem mm-hmm. um, years ago, mm-hmm. uh, when it was also standard um, for there to be reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think about well, two 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 things occur to me. Um, I think I think there's a wide variation, and I do think it would have to depend. I also think, in some part, that nobody ever tells the whole truth to anybody. You know, even if you're in a very good um, analysis, mm-hmm. um, I think that it's all there's always a certain amount that's that's withheld or held back, and that's part of what becomes interesting to think about: is what is it that one is reluctant to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, when I think about my own experience, um, I want to say, in, well, two things. In part, I was very lucky um, in that the people that I worked with, I had three really um, terrific supervisors, people to whom I don't think I told everything, but I didn't, I didn't have a whole lot of hesitation um, to be able to tell them uh, what you know, feelings that I had or the stupid thing that I did. Mm -hmm. Um, I, so I think I was very lucky in that way. Um, and in the, you know, in in terms of in the classroom, there was a lot of variation, but I think I had a lot of good teachers who addressed things like this 
questions like the one you're raising or the dilemma that you're raising. So it was also sometimes something that could be spoken about, Mm -hmm. which I think was helpful. Um, I also think that in my particular instance, um, I think that one of the benefits, and I don't know if you would notice anything like this in terms of, you know, um, the age that a person is, but I went into this pretty late, (laughs) <laughs> you know, in, in relation to what, what many people do, I was in my, um, past my mid fifties, uh, I think it was 56 maybe when I started analytic training. And I think that there was something about being older that meant that I was productively less inhibited in certain kinds of ways, <laughs> you know, freer to, to, yeah. to speak. So I think that that was, um, just a you know a, a, an advantage that I had in that in that area, but I also think that you know one of the things that I enjoy doing best is actually teaching writing, mm-hmm. and I've taught uh, the writing class at Bipsy for candidates, and I've also taught another writing class that you know invites people from across the hierarchy to. Um, you know, like a writing workshop, anything that you want to write that's about psychoanalysis is welcome in this class. And I find that um, that kind of attention to what one is um, putting down on the page um, and then bringing it and sharing it Mm -hmm. actually opens up all kinds of very useful conversation about um, what one will risk saying, what one is hesitant to say, you know, either in writing, but there's an analogy to the talking mm-hmm. to a supervisor or right. to talking to one's analyst. So I have found that in terms of a teaching, um, the earplug just thought, a teaching um, context that I think opens up uh, thinking about what it is that one is or isn't uh, going to risk saying, mm-hmm. um, I find that a very, a very important um, for me. It's an important, an important thing for students to um, to be talking about their writing. You know, how do they how do they convey, for example, um, you know, their own clinical work you know, in, in writing, I think can then be also a way to reflect on how one is in one's own, you know, um, analysis. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Is that yeah. sort of coherent? Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that, um, we're getting, I mean, that's, I'm actually, excuse me, but I'm actually kind of, uh, I realize I'm kind of surprised that, that you say that, um, yes and no. Um, but that, but that it seems, uh, that there, that it's so prevalent that there's so much, um, inhibition that way. I mean, yeah, 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 I'm sure you're right. I think it's an open secret. And I was at a conference not long ago at the, uh, from the William Allenson White Institute, a mix of candidates and, you know, people out and who've been out in the field, you know, like I have for a long time and, you know, but the, but, you know, you could hear the whispering, like, I don't want to say this because I don't want to. And I was like, oh yeah, it's, there's, it's always there. The fear of being seen as pathological, you know, for, yeah, for, yeah, for, yeah. for thinking. And mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a heartbreak because this is a, this is the talking cure for the analytic candidate too. You know, right. we right. speak and our unconscious comes forth mm-hmm. and it's not there to be condemned, right. it's there to be, you know, to, to be embellished, to be understood, to be, you know, so on and so forth. So that more, always more can be said. The, yes. The analyst can tolerate feeling everything, the patient, you know, and, and being aware of all of their feelings toward the patient and not acting on them. The patient gets better, you know, I mean, it's, I, we see this happen. Um, but I, but you talk in, you write in the book about, um, uh, let's see, analytic grandiosity and <laughs> charisma. And you also write about, um, you link together uh, subjectivity and narcissism. Um, My sense through reading this book was that um, you have a lot of uh, deep questions or important questions 
about the relational turn. Um, you have a lot of queries, and um, would would that be a would that be a fair statement? And and would you? Um, well, I'm very wary of generalizations. Um, I guess it it depends on uh, what what you what you mean when you use that. Um, mm-hmm. That, those words, the relational turn. Mm-hmm. So maybe if you could say a little more about what you mean by that, um, you know. Sure. I mean, I think I think that I am. I mean, you're right. There is. A, I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about you know your question. Um, I know that there is a very strong uh, thread um, in the in the book or in the you know in the essays over the course of the book mm-hmm. that questions. Um, a certain turn in the in their literature that seems to me to focus uh, with you know with a tremendous emphasis on the analyst's experience, mm-hmm. um, and that there is a, 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 a balance that gets tilted, where I think sometimes that tendency can have the effect of um, uh, what reducing appropriate um emphasis on the patient's experience oh, when analysis the protagonist you write or when yeah you discuss oh, yeah. Like surfing and you know this uh, right that the, that the that the heroic figure or the figure that's at the center of the image yeah that's the uh the the analyst as surfer in one of um Owen Rennick's hero. papers yeah analyst as hero the odysseus um image you know, for me, I'm not sure. I'm not. Sure, we may be going away from your question, but we can return to it. But for me, um, it's telling to think about or to consider what the actual metaphors are or the images are mm-hmm. that are um, articulated to capture the function or the role of the analyst. So, I mean, I fell in love at a certain point with the. Um, the pick paper that I talk about with the image of the analyst uh, walking a tightrope. And I compare that as I remember it to uh, the image of the analyst as Odysseus tied to the mast Mm -hmm. or then the Rennick one of the surfer. Um, And to me, it's, it's got to have some kind of reverberation or some kind of meaning um, that affects how we think about the discipline and what we do mm-hmm. when the image is one that positions the analyst as um, the one who's the heroic figure. And I'm very much <laughs> um, like, I mean, somewhere I use, um, I think it's a, the a Menelay or something. There's one image there where I say uh, um, somewhere that what what what's more, what I like best about this um, I think it may be where I use the image of um, Perseus and the shield. Mm-hmm. Um, that, and what's more, the hero is clearly the patient. Right. <laughs> so, so I incline to um, to be, uh, you know, I to be. I notice things like that, and I and and to me, they have to have some kind of meaning. Well, sure. I mean, you you uh, are very. Um very cogent. At one point in the book, you talk about the, initially we have the analyst as like kind of a, you know, the telephone receiver kind of. A, right. Know. Yeah. I, I spew a bunch of right. images. Yeah, right. It's, it's terrific. And then we have the sort of more low Waldian, you know, he comes in and he introduces this idea of the mother. Right. Which is right. Right. Something. right. And, then, and then you refer to um, Warren Poland's, um, the technically skilled assistant. So yeah. really, that, that's that's quite different. I mean, the, the word also you use the word tilt in this book in the way that in a way that's so poetic. You, you're not talking about simply asymmetry, but you're talking about there there is a tilt. What is the tilt? Which way is the the analysis tilting? Poland is there's no. I don't see a tilt there. <laughs> the technical uh-huh. assistant that language. Yeah. yeah. Is no, there's no tilt, and it sort of tends toward something like not quite democracy, but you know, something. Yeah, it's very, it's very modest, actually, in comparison to the other, um, to the other images. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. It is, yeah. Doesn't it also sort of 
point to kind of like I'm um, I, there's something a little more democratic or something that I, that I think of as part of as part of the relational turn is sort of like why do we you talk about the analyst as um, who do you quote Gardner um, who asks how can we show we are human we are either human or <laughs> so what would you say um, Ellen, I like it because it's aphoristic. Yeah. Right. What would you say about the desire to show that the analyst is human? What is that about? <laughs> the desire to show that the analyst is well, human? If, if we look at the turn to the analyst's subjectivity, the analyst having a subjectivity, the analyst's inner world, um, aspects of the analyst's emotional experience. The- so are you saying that that is an effort to show that the analyst is human? I wonder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting way to articulate it. Um, why do we have to show that the analyst is human? Um, yeah. Isn't the analyst human? <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, I guess there's also, though, you know, in reading this book, I, I thought, you know, is the emphasis on the analyst's subjectivity, does, does that stand in the way of getting the transference going? Could it stalemate it? Um is it just hard for us to tolerate not mattering? What would make oh, that's an uh, that's I find that very interesting. Is it hard for us to tolerate not mattering? Yeah, yeah. it is. <laughs> yes, it is. That's it why is. I'm doing this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that one of the people I was drawn to very early when I was just doing, um, um, you know, I had a, a dissertation um, advisor who was to whom I'll forever be grateful um in some ways she she's she's the source of you know this this book in the end um that when i set out to start to write the dissertation uh she said that her suggestion to me um was that uh, i think that was probably in the spring and in the in the fall i was you know the following year i was going to be completing the doctoral project and she said what i suggest you do for the next 3 or 4 months over the summer is just not worry about what you're going to write but just read just mm-hmm. sink into the literature and read and let yourself find the the threads or the themes that you they're going to emerge mm-hmm. they're going to emerge as you um as you as you do that and there's a way in which um the fact that she it's a little bit like entering analysis and you know having a trust that mm-hmm. something like that is similar is going to happen that you know it doesn't matter if it isn't orderly or if it feels chaotic or whatever you're just going to let yourself sink into it right. and the the what's important will will take a form and and will emerge um but i think that her encouragement um that i trust that process mm-hmm. Um, was was absolutely uh, central for me mm-hmm. in what enabled me to um, to write the essays over time. Mm-hmm. But I'm I'm not sure we have we gone away from whatever your question is about well, the relationship. Does not matter. I mean, they just bring us wherever they bring us. It's fine. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. Whatever. You know, I I guess I one of the things that's always interested me is um, whatever it was that was. Uh, you know, scary, and I think scary to Freud too, mm-hmm. about um, what it was he was articulating, you know, as he was, you know, discovering or inventing, you know, I don't care which word one uses, um, the psychoanalytic situation, um, is that, uh, you know, things that he was calling attention to or was... Um, you know, articulating in uh, helping to to structure mm-hmm. um, the situation, and that I think he struggled with all along. You know, sort right. of being knocked out by the not understanding himself, having to adjust to the power that it had. Um, Absolutely, I th- I think that so much of what he articulated early on um, really did get distorted very much, mm-hmm. um, you know, over the decades. And there's a way in which, you know, I think about me, I mean, maybe this is too tidy a way to put it or too simple minded, but whatever it was that got, um, 
the blood got taken out of it, you know, or something. Mm -hmm. And um, the rigidities of, of, you know, this, this, in in this country anyway, of those um, middle century years of analysis. And then whatever it is that had to get shaken up, which the relational turn is part of in the, in the last decades of the, of the century. Um, you know, that's all embedded in the history. And I, and I, um, uh, I I think of John Clauber, uh, you know, sometimes someone I was drawn to very early when I was doing, I know what the connection was that in telling, uh, telling you about my uh, dissertation advisor and her saying, you know, just read, 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 read. I remember that that summer I discovered John Clauber and I was so struck by, um, you know, I was thinking about the fact that um, what this man had died, what was I going to, you know, make of that? I was, um, you know, fascinated to think about it and think about what the implications were for the nature of the clinical situation. And then Clauber has a couple of essays where he writes about the neglect of, you know, how does that, how does any clinician um, manage, um, you know, working with people in this way, um, and then losing, uh, you know, do quotation marks in the air, you know, ending with people loss after loss, after loss, after loss. And that it's not just a process of grieving for the patient who says goodbye. It was, I think, Clauber who first made me realize that there were people who thought about the task for the analyst. And I said, I I mean, what could be more humanizing, you know, um, you know, the work of standard view on this? Pardon? You know the work of Sandra Buechler on this? I mean, she writes so much about the impact of analysis on the analyst. Oh, you know, I have to read it again. I, I have, but I have, yeah. She's, ter- she's terrific and yeah. thinking about yeah. early clinical experiences and their impact on us. And also um, she writes about go- about a, a patient dies and in right. the middle of a treatment. And she says, oh, well, you know, I can't, I can't go to the I can't go to the funeral because I, who can I say I am? Like what, how do I mourn this loss? Your book asks a different question, which I think is so important is what do we lose? I've had two analysts die. I've been through. You have. Yeah. 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 Huh. A group, a group analyst I was with for a zillion years and he was quite old and the experience of his death was really different than the experience of, an individual analyst huh. who I knew she was sick and she, my last session with her, I came in, I mean, she was open and she had, you know, she had cancer and she, yeah. she was dying in her eighties. Um, and my last session with her, which I didn't know would be my last session. She said, I'll keep working until I can, if you can tolerate that. I said, I can tolerate Yeah. But it was on the table. It was out there between you. It was talked about oh yeah no yeah yeah huge difference yeah Yeah. and I I sat in her chair I came into for a session and she really was not doing well she's lively in the mind but the body was failing and so she was on the couch and she started to get up and she said oh just sit in my chair I mean she was yeah she was brilliant and at some level knew this was likely my last session it was Christmas away for two weeks and when I came back she she had died my last memory of her is us talking. She put your feet up. She put your feet up. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> she was the yeah. head of the yeah. Institute of the Center for Modern Yeah, it's very poignant what, what you're describing. It's, yeah. It was beautiful. I mean, yeah. she, took a, she took us with her versus my group analyst, Lou Warmont, who I adored. He had a little more grandiosity. He didn't let us know. You know, we were left yeah. home. And it was a group. And we're like, we, how could we ever see each other again to say goodbye to the members of the right. group? Right, right. Right. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, um, you know, I, I remember very clearly um, what it was when, when my therapist died. And there's a way in which writing this book, one of the things that I think I, among the many things I think I was doing um, in writing these essays over time, it was, it was my, I also went into analytic training um, after he died. I don't know that I would have necessarily uh, go, I'll never know, but I, mm-hmm. I don't, I had not, I was not intending to go into analytic training at the time that I was working with him. Mm-hmm. Um, but something about that death kind of catapulted me 
um, in that direction. And I sometimes think that the, um, that what I have been doing, I'm still writing about it in writing about, um, you know, this subject of the analyst's mortality, mm-hmm. um, is a form of retrieving him, yeah. of finding him again. And, you know, he wasn't technically, I do those quotation marks in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, he technically was not my analyst. <laughs> I laugh at that uh, because I, I didn't see him, you know, four days a week, whatever it was. And, um, it, it was an analytic treatment. And I think that one of the things I like uh, that I think I accomplish, uh, you know, for me, it's it's part of what I accomplish is that in writing these essays, um, I actually uh, secure him as my analyst. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's clear, but I didn't. I was not. I, did, I was afraid to go to his funeral. I mean, um, people. I was not a part of the community at the time, and um, I. Um, what, you know, someone then, the people who contacted me were quite terrific, mm-hmm. and they made it clear that I was welcome to come to the funeral. I wouldn't have gone if they hadn't made that specific mm-hmm. um, invitation. Mm-hmm. And it was actually a very, uh, what, I don't know what kind of word to use. It was a very moving and satisfying and important thing for me that I did go to his funeral. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, can, can you give more? To, I'm going to extend the session if you have the time, but I don't know if you do. I have a bit of time. A little bit of time. Because oh, yeah. there's a couple of other things. I just, I really loved this book so much. So there's a couple other things. Um, One of the things you liked, if I'm hearing you right, though, which I love, is that you actually liked the writing itself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the writing, I was like, oh, that's so important. Like that. but, and I'm like, I you know, because I, because I do, you know, I love the psychoanalytic literature, but I do, I do also have trouble with a certain kind of um, psychoanalytic writing that's, you know, very heavy with jargon and, you know, sentences that are too long. And so one of my goals was to both use the language, but not get sunk in the, not, you know, sink yeah. in the language. Yeah. And also to be kind of um, suspicious isn't exactly the right word, but to be kind of um, wary of assumptions about the the jargon or the language. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, you didn't write a book that put me to sleep. Um, and many, many <laughs> oh, that's are horrific. You know, it's like, okay, good night. You know, just if I can't sleep, wake up and read some new psychoanalytic book. I'm like, oh no, 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 this is too too difficult. Um, I wanted to ask a couple other things. And I know, um, actually, um, Ellen wants to read something um, to us from the book. So we're going to leave some time for that as well, which is a real treat. Um, uh, but I wanted to get to, I think, to, oh gosh, there's so much here. But anyway, I wanted, I wanted to try to situate your book in relationship to the literature on boundary violations like Gabbard and uh, Chalenza. And it is such, takes such a different tack. I think, and I want how how would you put that? That that's very interesting to me. I, I think it does, but I, I'm very interested that you you have what a you're saying of of the word of the term, and it's so refreshing. You were like boundary violations. What? Like it's at some level that's bloodless. You know, at the, some level. Sorry, I missed the word. At some bloodless, level. like the the term boundary violations, right? Yeah. Or yeah, uh, you know, and you say well, it's something about is it, you know this is not property. Boundary right. violation is like oh, you know, it's like it's like it's like Trumpian language. You're going to build a wall. You're violating our boundary. There's- yeah, I think I say it's more kinetic than that. That it doesn't somewhere I say anyway that it it's more kinetic than that. That 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 is an image of yeah, as you're saying, mm-hmm. um, you know, something that um, is a line or a wall or is stationary in some way, something to be crossed, mm-hmm. but that in fact the um, whatever it is that happens between the two people, um, it's much more kinetic than that. I think I use the. Uh, language of a, it's more like a line of scrimmage or something like that. <laughs> then, okay. yeah. And I think that you, yeah. but you, but I, but I also really like as you're trying to, you're, it's, it's as if we can't think about what does the patient lose when the analyst yeah. violates the frame? Um, we yeah. think about what drives the analyst to do this. I think we can think of, you know, we can feel our way into that and we've touched on some of that, but what, 
goes on for the patient? What is lost? So if the question right. when the trans when you're in the midst of this transference, and then the analyst becomes, uh, you know, you know, acts on seductive feelings. But what is what is the patient? What is the patient lost? What is the experience for the patient? You quote that what the woman who wrote for, um, I forget her name, but she was a patient who wrote about her experience, as did Muriel Dimon write about her experience. Right. And, you know, it's it's excruciating because it's, it's you say it's like, it's not a boundary violation. At some level, I think you say there's there's a, a rape of the treatment. Not that the, the patient is necessarily raped, but that there's a rape of the psyche in some ways. Like yeah, it's a violation. Yeah, it's yeah. a it's a violation of... Uh, yeah, there's a there's a violence implicit, uh, something, uh, a destructiveness. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, in, implicit. Yeah, I think yeah. I think your book. I think maybe that your book could be written now. Of course, you know it, we needed the books, you know, and the work by Gabbard and Shalenza, thinking about what goes on inside the analyst. To now think, well, well, you know, what goes on for the patient? You know, when this when this happens, um, it was almost like we couldn't look at that until we looked at what what makes us. You know, when, when this happens, what's gone wrong? You know, right, what's taking right. place? And it, maybe it's a, a good sign that there's there's now space to imagine, um, you know, the the loss for the patient. Um, uh, well, I I hope so. I mean, I I um, I think that one of the ways that I like to uh, think about this this collection is I like to. Um, but I'm going to be careful because I don't want to give myself too much credit or anything, but that I think of these as not as papers, but as essays Mm -hmm. and that they are, um, they're, 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 they're more personal in a certain kind of way, even when they don't speak directly to, um, you know, to my experience that, that openly or that fully, that I like to think that what is conveyed is related to this area exactly of um, the patient's experience mm-hmm. of this loss. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my, um, somebody pointed out and I was very um, pleased, you know, when she, when she did um, in, in, in a review of the book that I saw recently, you know, that it begins with um, that it has a shape, you know, that the, the the series of essays, um, how it starts and how it ends. Uh, maybe this is a good moment to move toward the epilogue. What she points out is that um, something like that, you know, that I introduced early the fact of my own experience, which was that this person died. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then immediately the questions, you know, who had I lost? What had I lost? And also, uh, very importantly, what had I been given? Was, right. the, was the other question yeah. that that is the idea of the mortal gift and that only an imperfect person, only a human person who is by definition because human an imperfect being that only an imperfect being can give that gift. Absolutely. I mean, um, and then she said, but, but what she said was that, uh, you know, something along the lines of that in, in reading the, essays and then getting to the epilogue mm-hmm. that there was a way in which the epilogue sort of uh what um you know finished it that it's sort of that that all of the, the, the very beginning where I talk about the, the my own personal experience of mm-hmm. the loss and then the epilogue which is the only really personal part of uh directly personal mm-hmm. um part of the book um that it was all structured to fit together. And I thought, great, that's exactly what I, that's exactly what I wanted, even though I wasn't thinking about it in a stepwise no, way. It, it, absolutely. I mean, it's a wonderful example of cycle, you know, within the, within the field of, of auto, you know, what's known in the academy as auto theory, you know, that there's a, there's a, a there's, there's an autobiographical, there's autobiography that sort of prompts a reworking, a theoretical or yep. philosophical yep. rethinking. Um, so I, I guess, you know, oh, I have so many more questions, but we, uh, we should not go too much over. Yeah. <laughs> so if you are ready, um, and you have the, um, the epilogue in front of you, you I do want to say, do you want to tell us what it is that, um, uh, 
you know, what, what you're thinking in, in reading this to us? What is it that you're, um, what makes you want to read this to us? Um, well, um, one thing is that, uh, you know, in, in the dissertation that I wrote, uh, that I finished in 1998, um, you know, the, this collection of essays is both similar to that dissertation in the in its overall movement, mm-hmm. um, but each of the essays, a couple of the essays are completely different. They weren't written at that time. Um, but, um, and each essay that was in the original dissertation is quite changed. Mm-hmm. But the epilogue um, is not exactly the same, but the epilogue, was in the dissertation, and it comes very close to this form um, that it's in in the book. So that's one reason. So something about it, I guess, is very meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also um, it well. Well, can I? It, can I just... it brings him back to life for me. You know, yeah. I I don't read this daily, but I, I pick this up every you know month or two, and I read the epilogue. Um, there's something about it that uh, puts me, brings me, brings him back in touch with me um, in a way that um, I like. And it also shows us um, how to play with fire and how to play with. Sorry, how to how, play with how to play with fire. Something that is often avoided. It's a beautiful example, I think, as the listeners will um, soon hear, of how Ellen's analyst works with her strong desire for something more and his incapacity to satisfy. Right. He was going to say no. Um, Also, I don't actually remember, um, I don't have 100% recall of the epilogue. Um, It may be in the text, but I'm not sure. But I'll say it just in case it isn't, that one of the um, things that was true of of that, my work with him, was that um, I used to say to him, uh, regularly, you know, not daily, but uh, regularly enough, I would find myself saying, particularly toward the end of a of an especially powerful hour, I would find myself saying to him, "I'm so afraid I'm going to lose you before I'm ready." Mm-hmm. So there's something about that 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 maybe um, illuminates a little bit. Um, you know how meaningful this is. This is for me. Um, so, shall I just read it? Sure, absolutely. Okay. It begins with. Um, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah, just. Fine. Okay. It begins with a a little um, a few sentences from um, Pablo Neruda's um, childhood and poetry. Mm-hmm. So it begins with that. I'll read that, and then I'll go on to read the text. So this is Pablo Neruda from Childhood and Poetry. I have been a lucky man. To feel the intimacy of brothers is a marvelous thing in life. To feel the love of people whom we love is a fire that feeds our life. But to feel the affection that comes from those whom we do not know, from those unknown to us, who are watching over our sleep and solitude, over our dangers and our weaknesses, that is something still greater and more beautiful because it widens out the boundaries of our being and unites all living things. So this is the epilogue itself. When my therapist, Joseph Nemitz, suddenly died, I had been working with him in an intensive psychotherapy two and three times a week for more than four years. Nemitz's professional conduct, in retrospect, serves as an implicit critique of the inadequate professional literature regarding the central matter of the therapist's mortality in both primary senses. I had asked several weeks earlier if we could talk about my beginning analysis. Nemitz was surprised by my request, and I by his surprise. I thought I had made many less than subtle hints about analysis. I told him I thought I had been reasonably clear. He replied that he had not understood me. Possibly both of us were right. I came to wonder later whether I had in fact been quite clear, but that his usual capacity to hear me had in this particular matter broken down. 
did he wish not to hear me? I've wondered whether his deafness to my hints came from his intuitive understanding that if I were to ask, he would have to say no, the answer he'd be compelled, as I now understand it, to give. With the refusal, I would, if I wanted analysis enough, move to another therapist. I believe that he cared very much about me, enjoyed his work with me, and preferred that I not leave him. He didn't answer me right away. He told me that because of his age, he was 71, he was cautious about beginning new analyses. When I asked if our four years of work together made no difference, he answered that of course it did, and that he would need some time to think about it. Over the next 10 days, I argued my case, growing more excited and hopeful as the days passed, and he did not refuse. Several minutes into our fifth meeting, after I had first asked to begin analysis, I was speaking with an animation every minute moving closer to pleased assumption. I would have my wish. I remember that he lifted his hand lightly several inches off his knee in a gesture that stopped me dead, a woe to a racing horse. The very long silence lasted perhaps five seconds, and then he spoke quietly. There's more than one person in this room to be considered, he said. I was speechless. At that moment and in that pause, I caught a clear glimpse of him, perhaps for the first time in ten days. So hard had I been working to obliterate him in order to have what I wanted. I saw something then about what he might feel, what he might wish, and what this decision might mean for him. I was able then to say, calmly and with tremendous sadness, this must be hard for you, too. He nodded very slightly and said, in many ways. Although he didn't give me his answer until the next time we met, I knew then what he would likely say and began to prepare myself for it. Sometimes I think I'd really known the answer from the beginning, maybe even before he did, and my wish not to hear what I already knew explained my impetuous rush to fill with words any space for an honest exchange with him. My unconscious hope was to keep both of us from deeper reflection, but he didn't give up that responsibility. Near the start of our next meeting, he said that given the nature of my own losses and the power of analysis, and given the good possibility that he might die before the work was done, analysis with him was not a good idea. He said that if I wanted analysis, he'd help me arrange it. I knew that given his love for the work, and especially for that work from behind the couch, his decision was not easy. But I also knew in a hazy way that it was his commitment to the work and to me that guided his decision. I asked him if he'd ever changed his mind about anything, and he replied quickly and very gently, I once decided not to be a cowboy. As was often true in my time with this man, my laughter was part of the power of the moment. Few people have ever looked less like a cowboy. My tears and rage followed. But I didn't fully understand his words for a long time. Many months after his death, I did understand that Dr. Nemitz was telling me far more than, no, I can't be your analyst. He was telling me that however much he might wish to give me what I wanted, he couldn't change his mind because any other decision by his lights would be wild and incautious. His refusal was dictated by his understanding of and respect for the power of the analytic process, for his own human limitations, and for me. With that decision, I think he looked squarely at the ending of his life work and of his life. At some point, I also understood his remark, I once decided not to be a cowboy. I understood it as a rejection of the charismatic style of certain analysts. I use the word charismatic here in the pejorative sense. Nemitz had the capacity to bear the responsibility of no, and at the moment he spoke, it was to remind me that there are always two individual mortal people in the consulting room. And in that quiet reminder is located the most essential principle guarding the patient's safety. 
A few weeks later, on a Wednesday in mid-May, the hour came to to a close. I remained angry at him. He was going away for the weekend to a conference in Philadelphia. He often ended an hour with something intended to leave me thinking. This time it was a question. His last words to me were, What have I done to make you think I don't understand how disappointed you are? I paused and said, I'll think about it, and I'll let you know Monday morning. I stood up and left him with my usual tagline when he went away to meetings. Have a good time, learn something, and cross the street very carefully. He collapsed without warning on Sunday in the airport in Philadelphia, and he died six days later, apparently never regaining consciousness. Thank you for reading that. Quite powerful. There it is, yeah. Yeah, there it is. Um. Yeah. So I wrote that actually. I I I wrote a version of that pretty close to what it is there, mm-hmm. um, back in nineteen ninety seven ninety eight when I was working on my dissertation. So the fact that it was you know it was pretty much <laughs> it was formed then. I mean it was it was very powerful then and it remains very powerful. And I I really. I very much like that um, it ended up that when I put this collection together, there it was (laughs) still. (laughs) So if we were to take this book and just take the epilogue and put it in a time capsule (laughs) and take it out of the time. Oh, that's interesting. Uh We could take out the epilogue and perhaps in many respects reconstruct the book. So (laughs) that's very, that's good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Um, well, thank you. I hope that you um, write another book and um, you know get more of your writing out there. And uh, when you do, just let us know in the book and psychoanalysis so we can talk some more. Good. I hope we meet sometime. <laughs> exactly. I'll look for you. I don't know where I'm going to be in the in the future at, at some conference, but I always like to um, you know, find the authors that I've had the chance to um, uh-huh. spend time with and spend time with their work and spend time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, well, thank you very much, Tracy. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you could join us. And to the listeners out there, thank you for listening as always. Um, always happy to um, provide you with the latest and the greatest of uh, psychoanalytic publications. Um, the next uh, book that I will be doing will be uh, Elizabeth Danto's uh, book on um, Anna Freud and Tiffany uh, Burlingham. And um, that should be terrific. I don't know when I'll be doing that, but in the next couple of months. So stay tuned and listen in. And um, I am uh, your devoted host at InBooks and Psychoanalysis, signing off for now. <laughs>